This is a special edition of Macro Voices with hedge fund manager Eric Townsend, the premier financial podcast targeting professional finance, high net worth individuals, family offices, and other sophisticated investors. Now, for this special edition of Macro Voices, here's hedge fund manager Eric Townsend. Macro Voices All-Stars Episode 80 was recorded on November 25th, 2019. I'm Eric Townsend. Professor Steve Keen is back with us today. This episode of Macro Voices All-Stars was made possible by TopTradersUnplugged.com, which happens to be my own favorite podcast when it comes to quant and rules-based investing. Check them out. You'll be glad you did. Steve, back in February of 2016, you wrote an article. Listeners, we've got a link to that article in the description of today's interview on our homepage at macrovoices.com next to Steve's picture. Steve, you predicted back in February of 2016, uh, don't believe what they say, the Fed will eventually go back to more quantitative easing. Now, we have an interesting conundrum. Uh, it appears on the surface that they have gone back to quantitative easing, but it has come with some real really, really strong press announcements assuring us that this expansion of the balance sheet for the purpose of providing accommodative policy is not quantitative easing. Do not call it that. <laughs> Strictly prohibited. You must not refer to it as quantitative easing because that's not what it is. It just feels like it is. What should we make of this? When you predicted we were going back to QE, is this what you expected? And how does what we're seeing now compare with what you thought was going to happen? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's quite amusing. You know, don't talk about the war as the old Monty Python line from, well, not Monty Python line, it's from uh, Faulty Towers. And I think that's pretty appropriate. We've got, in this case, we have Faulty Reserve Towers because, you know, what they're doing now is QE by another name. It's it's not a rose by any name, it's a thorn by any other by another name. And uh, the reason I said it was going to happen again, the title of my article was actually Tilting at Windmills, the Faustian Folly of Quantitative Easing. And that was because, first of all, one of the logical reasons that they gave for undertaking QE in the first place is something that had been said two years earlier by the Bank of England to be a fiction, and that is that banks lend out reserves. So part of the idea was to, by buying $80 billion worth of bonds off the financial sector every month, meaning ultimately effectively a trillion dollars per year of financial assets, bonds, you know, really quality stuff like mortgage-backed securities and so on, being bought off the banks at face value and then turning up on the on the asset side of the uh, Federal Reserve and thereby injecting a, effectively a billion dollars worth of cash into the financial sector. The vision was, well, with this extra, extra money turning up as reserves in the banking sector, the banks would lend those reserves out and that would stimulate the economy. And in 2014, the Bank of England came out with a now famous paper called Money Creation and the Modern Economy, pointing out that that textbook model of money creation is simply wrong. The banks cannot lend out the reserves. So strike one against QE. The second rationale they gave was that it would drive up stock prices. And there, of course, it's been an absolute winner because, as you and I both know, stock prices have risen pretty much by a factor of four since the Federal Reserve started QE way back in about 2010. 
Steve, how do we make sense now that they're doing this again, but they're saying that they're not doing it again? Let's look beyond what they're saying and focus on what they're actually doing. The actions that are being taken now, what do you think they are trying to accomplish through these actions? Why are they telling us not to call it QE, uh, even though that's what it seems to be? And more importantly, what do you think is really going to happen? In other words, how do their intentions for what they hope to accomplish with QE compared to what you expect will really happen? Yeah, well, the basic thing, it's QE, QE by another name, because I think that the amount of money they're buying back now is roughly $50 billion a month rather than 80. So it's not quite on the same scale as the original QE, but it's doing exactly the same thing. They've what they're doing fundamentally in terms of the operations they undertake is what are called open market operations, which is something actually they almost got out of the habit of, courtesy of the amount of reserves they've created. But they're saying on, on the buying and selling that goes on all the time between the Federal Reserve and the, the banking sector, and particularly the finance sector in general, uh, as well as buying and selling government bonds, they're also buying and selling privately issued bonds. And that's you know, mortgage-backed securities in some cases, bonds of private corporations than the other, uh, that is injecting money into the hands of uh, both, of course, initially the sellers, but also into the reserve accounts of the uh, of the, the banking sector, because that's where the money gets put. With that money in the hands of financial institutions rather than bonds, they've swapped, any, whether they're dodgy or not, they're swapping an income-earning asset such as a bond in return for cash, which doesn't give you an income. So that's a motivation for those firms to buy shares and other other forms of investment because being financial institutions, they're required to spend the money they get on financial assets. And of course, this turns into, even in a very colloquial way, is something like an extra trillion dollars worth of buying pressure every year on the share market. Well, lo and behold, share prices rise. And we've seen that my, my favourite reason for calling it a Faustian bargain, a pact with the devil. Uh, you can probably you can probably remember the reason for this, uh, Eric. I'll give you a quick quiz. What, why do you think it's a one of the joke reasons that it actually deserves to be called a pact with the devil? Oh, I can think of lots of reasons that it qualifies for being a, a, a pact <laughs> well, with the devil. Well, my favorite is that um, the, the, when they started doing QE, the S and P had fallen to six hundred and sixty-six points. Okay, so the, the mark of the devil, if you know your conspiracy theories and Nostradamus and all that stuff. So it's since risen by a factor of four pretty much since then. And the reason is because you're simply putting all this buying pressure on the share market. The people who sell the shares, of course, get a lot wealthier. The people who hang on to the shares also have their wealth increase. That has dramatically increased inequality in society. Now, they didn't do it to increase inequality. They did it because they believe it caused what they call a wealth effect, where the wealth effect means that because people wealth has risen, as well as spending out of their income, they spend a bit out of their wealth as well, and that'll stimulate the economy. Now, the ironic thing is you can find a paper by a little institution called the Federal Reserve estimating the numerical impact of increasing shares on consumption and finding that it was pretty much zero. The only asset class that actually seemed to affect consumption to a small degree when the prices were rising was house prices. So for a start, it's a bargain where the devil has sold you something that won't work. And then secondly, now that they've been so successful in driving up the stock market, and this always goes right back to the days of the Greenspan put, of course, any fall in the stock market is seen as the threat to the economy. So they dive back and rescue it again. And how do they rescue it again? By returning to QE when they said they were doing QT, quantitative tightening. 
Steve, you are perhaps best known as one of very few economists who accurately predicted the 2008 crisis before it happened. And uh, you've just described a moment ago, if we think about cause and effect, you've talked about the effect not being very effective of this. I want to talk about the cost associated with these share buybacks, because your analysis of the whole 2008 event was basically, look, the problem is too much private credit. Now, what we've done with all of this QE policy is we've created an environment where there is just an incredible amount of cheap money, primarily through both the junk bond market and the low end, you know, the the triple B lower rating end of the investment grade corporate bond market. There's a huge, huge amount of money which corporations are borrowing to buy back their own shares. So we've already talked about the benefit to society of the buyback of those shares being pretty close to zero, although the benefit to the CEOs is quite tremendous. Uh, What's the cost in terms of what's happened to the corporate balance sheets across the entire system? How has, uh, in theory, if we followed your prescriptions, we should have reduced corporate debt since 2009. Uh, We haven't reduced it, have we? And, And what is the cost and how will that cost eventually be felt in the economy? Well, in, in, one, in one technical level, the cost is zero uh, for the simple reason that the Federal Reserve can create as much money as it likes simply by balance sheet operations. So what they're doing when they undertake QE is not um, you know, borrow, taxing the public and then using that money to buy bonds off the, off the financial sector. They're simply saying, we're going to make an entry of a trillion dollars collectively over a year in your, uh, the asset side of your, your ledgers, financial sector. Uh, in return, you give us a billion dollars worth of bonds that we can put on our asset side. And we've increased the amount of money in the financial sector. We've increased our own assets, uh, in the Federal Reserve, and now we'd like you to go and do two impossible things. One is to lend that money out to the public, which is technically impossible, and the other is to stimulate consumption, which won't happen because A, you're giving the money to the rich who spend less anyway, and B, you've already proven that it doesn't uh, it doesn't stimulate consumption. So in that sense, it's cost less, but on the other side, of course, it's just simply encouraged uh, people who are looking for a high yield. It's because it's driven down interest rates as well on bonds, and that was another intention to flat and the yield curve, not just at the short end, but right across the whole spectrum. The impact of that has been to drive out sensible investments to to reduce the returns from holding uh, government bonds and other relatively safe corporate securities and encourage people to go looking for Ponzi schemes. So uh, it, it hasn't particularly increased the level of corporate debt as a percentage of GDP, but I think it's turned most of it into junk. What would that mean in terms of systemic risk? You've written quite a bit about, uh, you wrote a book entirely on the subject of can we avoid another financial crisis? The, The short answer for people who haven't read the book is no, we can't. As we get to the risk of another financial crisis, how much of it is in the stock market, which is where most people think about when they think about financial crisis, and how much of it is actually in the corporate bond market as a result of this this huge funding spree, which has fueled all of these buybacks? 
I think a large part is in the corporate sector, as you say. I mean, looking at the data, and this is one of the thing that I think I'll thank the Federal Reserve is for they have decent statisticians. And if you take a look back at the level of, uh, of private debt compared to GDP in America, then that peaked at 170% of GDP just shortly after the financial crisis and fell because of deleveraging to about 150%. But that was almost exclusively in the household. No, it was in both both the household sector and the corporate sector it fell. Now, it's still falling to some degree in the household sector. But if you look at the level of corporate debt, it is now higher than it was with the sole exception of 2009. In 2009, it reached 72.5% of GDP. It is now 70 a bit over 74.5% of GDP. So not much of a change from those days. But in the aftermath of the crisis, it fell from 72%, 72.5% to 66%. And now it's risen from 66% of GDP. That was in the middle of 2012 to 74.5% of GDP. So we've had a substantial increase in credit coming out of the corporate sector. And a lot of those are very dodgy assets which may not succeed in in being able to you know pay pay the bonds back and that i think gives you a lot of fragility on the on the asset side of a lot of the banking sector, the bonds that have been bought by the by the Federal Reserve, they can simply write them off. It doesn't matter to them because the central bank can operate without positive equity. But the reason the financial sector is so fragile is that a, to be a, a financial institution, and especially a bank, you must have positive equity. The gap between your assets and your liabilities must be positive. Now, when your liabilities are short term and can be withdrawn fairly rapidly, uh, that's one of the dangers. The other is the asset side. If the assets include a lot of paper assets, not not cash itself, but paper assets, shares in particular, and bonds, which are subject to being revalued, then if there's a market downturn, they can be revalued and suddenly your assets plunge in value, your, your liabilities haven't changed, and you end up being a negative equity. And this is uh, one, of the, one of the few reasons I recommend reading Hank Paulson's book, On the Brink, is to get a feeling of how fast this can happen because Hank got a telephone call during the crisis, I think from the, the Goldman Sachs, the chief of Goldman Sachs. Well, I think he, he, he used to work at Goldman Sachs, didn't he? Yeah, he was a chairman. Yes, yeah, okay. Well, whoever replaced him rang up and said, Hank, you've got to do something. Uh, if you don't do something soon, we're going to go bankrupt. And Hank said, how long have you got? This is on the back cover of the book, by the way, so you don't have to buy it to read it. The answer was about three hours. <laughs> well, and we can't let precious Goldman Sachs go. That's more no, 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 no. Any greater, higher value than any nation on earth is protecting Goldman Sachs. Indeed. So I think that's what we're, we're now stuck with. Whenever there's a downturn in the market, they'll dive back into QE again if they've stopped it in the meantime. And of course, if you take a look at the total assets of the uh, the Federal Reserve, you see that it, they peaked out at about $4.5 trillion. Now, to give an idea of what they were like before the crisis hit, before the crisis, the average level of, of, uh, the, of the, uh, assets of the of the Federal Reserve was below $1 trillion. Then when Bernanke realized that the, the, the sunny climbs he thought were coming our way in 2008 weren't going to happen, in a matter of weeks, starting on September the 10th, 2008, he drove those assets from just under a trillion to in November over $2 trillion. And then there's, there's the slow and steady climb of QE began after that. They flatlined at about $4.5 trillion for between 2015 and 2018. And when they banned QT, it starts declining. It got down to uh, $3.7 trillion, and then all the hell broke loose. 
stock market fell. That was the, the crashes that began around Christmas time as well. Then, the, of course, the repo crisis just recently, and bang, it's back up rising again. So it bottomed at uh, $3.769 trillion. Oh, this is nice on September the 11th, 2019, and it is now $4 trillion again. So I think just like when you sign your life away to Mephistopheles, you can't renegotiate at a later stage. They're stuck doing this indefinitely. Well, Steve, I can't thank you enough for another great interview. We look forward to getting you back in another month or so for another update. But before I let you go, there's a rumor floating around on the Internet that you are turning two-thirds of a century old this week and have a special post planned for your followers on Patreon. Please tell us about it. Yeah, I was. Uh, the, I made the decision to become an academic quite literally on the day that I turned one-third of a century old. And uh, now I, I never expected to have the impact that I've had on economics in my academic career. But now looking back on it, because I'm turning two-thirds of a century, it's a time to write a retrospective. And it's turned into an intellectual biography, partly on the inspiration of having read Edward Snowden's uh, fascinating permanent record and seeing that as an explanation of how he came to the decisions he made. I'm writing a similar style, nowhere near as dramatic but a similar style biography for myself with the working title of Being Economical with the Truth. And of course, that one is going to be released to your loyal followers on Patreon first. And I can assume later on, it'll probably be released to the general public. So keep your eye. Follow at Prof. Steve Keen on Twitter if you want more on that one. This episode of Macro Voices All-Stars was made possible by TopTradersUnplugged.com, my favorite podcast when it comes to quant and rules-based investing. And remember to head over and listen to my conversation with its host, Niels Kastrup Larson, which we released on September 7th, 2019. To get the slide deck that Niels shared, head over to toptradersunplugged.com forward slash macro slides. And as a listener of my show, you're also able to get Neil's latest book for free by going to toptradersunplugged.com forward slash macro. For the Macro Voices Podcast Network, I'm Eric Townsend. That concludes this edition of Macro Voices. Be sure to tune in each week to hear feature interviews with the brightest minds in finance and macroeconomics. Please register your free account at macrovoices.com. Once registered, you'll receive our free weekly research roundup email containing links to supporting documents from our featured guests and the very best free financial content our volunteer research team could find on the internet each week. You'll also gain access to our free research library. And the more registered users we have, the more we'll be able to recruit high-profile feature interview guests for future programs. So please register your free account today at macrovoices.com if you haven't already. You can subscribe to Macro Voices on iTunes to have Macro Voices automatically delivered to your mobile device each week free of charge. Macro Voices is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Macro Voices should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed on Macro Voices are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or sponsors. Macro Voices, its producers, sponsors, and hosts, Eric Townsend, shall not be liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on information or viewpoints presented on Macro Voices. Macro Voices.